A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. Hello and welcome. I'm Tim Farron and this is the show where you get to hear from a Christian who works in the mucky world of politics. A Christian or maybe people working in allied professions. More about that in a moment. You might well think that politics is tainted by compromise and sin. Of course you'd be right. But then again, so is everything else since the fall. And so I think Christians should be praying for their brothers and sisters who are involved in politics in an informed way. So today, we're going to speak to Mark Pickering, the Chief Executive of the Christian Medical Fellowship. It's a group with more than 6,000 members who seek to help Christian doctors, nurses, midwives and medical students stand up for their faith. Although Mark isn't a politician, the Christian Medical Fellowship often put their heads above the parapet when it comes to political issues. They're not afraid to share their ethical concerns when new policies are mooted. We'll be speaking to Mark about the current political and medical debate around assisted dying. All that to come, but first, Cara Bentley has a roundup of some of the stories you might have missed. Well, in just a month, we've seen how much individual events can shape our opinion of all 650 MPs. Only a few weeks ago, there was an attempt to recognise all the hard work that MPs do following the sudden snabbing of Sir David Amos. But a few weeks later, we have another MP, Owen Patterson, who tried to speak to ministers on behalf of companies who paid him, which is not allowed. It snowballed into a story about all MPs and how much some of them get paid to do second jobs that either distract from their parliamentary job or appear to have far too much overlap. In Glasgow, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, has apologised for saying that people will speak of world leaders in far stronger terms than we speak today of the politicians who ignored what was happening in Nazi Germany. He was trying to suggest that the damage caused by climate change will be infinitely greater than the deaths of Jews in the 1930s, but has since apologised for causing offence. But Tim, there have been lots of stories similar to this in the last two weeks, which have basically been people debating where they put climate change on the disastrous outcomes scale. What do you make of it? Well, a couple of weeks ago on the show, we talked about why Christians should care about climate change. But as, as COP26 continues, I think we should do a lot more than just care. We as Christians are called to love our neighbour. The Bible makes it clear that everyone is our neighbour including folks we don't like, folks who never met, folks who aren't yet born. And catastrophic climate change hurts our neighbour. So this isn't a plea to Christians to just get on board. It is a plea for us to take the lead. I'll let you into a secret. Politicians play to the headlines and to the public mood. So if the papers and the people are more interested in Strictly than they are in the planet, then environmental action will remain a second order issue to our leaders. So how should Christians think about our responsibility here? All have sinned and fall short, including in our mandate to care for creation. Christians agree that sin damages families. It damages society. So, of course, it should come as absolutely no surprise that it damages our environment and that there are miserable consequences for ourselves and our neighbours. We won't solve this if we act like Pharisees, feeling terribly righteous about our reusable coffee cups and our incredibly worthy tweets ticking off the impure and the unenlightened. Nevertheless, we should seek to do good, reusing and recycling, reducing those activities that see us emit carbon will all help to build a culture of care for our creation. And as we make wider societal changes, we have an additional compulsion to care for the poor. Globally, poorer people are the ones who have their homes flooded or consumed by drought, 
Here at home, living sustainably can be expensive. Electric cars and solar panels just are not affordable for millions of people. So to tackle this threat with love and justice, then those who have must share with the have-nots. Yet some Christians have taken a different view. They say, well, God's sovereign, he is, that dramatic weather changes are things the Bible speaks of as expected in the last days, which is also true, and therefore care for our climate is overstated. Sorry, I don't buy that last one. A church in Glasgow made the headlines last week for displaying a sign saying the world's most urgent need is churches preaching Christ crucified, not climate change. William Phillip from that church explained to Premier why they put up the banner, saying, we need to be clear that climate change is not the biggest issue we face when millions don't know the hope of the gospel. True, absolutely. But you could say that about any and every issue, large or small, public or private, and we should still care. And I just warn you that if you find passion about climate change irritating, then maybe you have been sucked into the culture war rather than legitimate theological debate. Because God created this planet and promises to restore all creation, not just the souls of individuals. We should certainly not treat solving the climate crisis as a means to salvation or an ultimate aim. But we remember that Jesus cared for people's physical needs as well as their spiritual ones. And if millions are being driven from their homes and their land because of rising sea levels and parched soil, then looking the other way would be an outrage. I've recently been reading the book of Zephaniah. The message of this prophet is that judgment is coming and we can't stop it. But we individually can escape judgment through repentance. This includes physically doing something about our sin, changing the way we live, seeking to make amends as an outworking of our inner repentance. I can't comment on whether climate change is an act of judgment, but I do know that it's real and it affects millions of our neighbours. The Bible is full of acts of repentance, from King Josiah to Zacchaeus the tax collector. I'm reminded also of 2 Chronicles 7.14, where God speaks to Solomon and promises that if there is a time of locusts or drought or plague, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. Our guest this week is Mark Pickering. Mark is the Chief Executive of the Christian Medical Fellowship, which aims to preach God's kingdom and to heal the sick. Mark's been running CMF since 2018, but he's been a member since the 90s when he joined as a medical student. Mark, it's an absolute blessing to have you with us. Well, let's start off with a question that we, we normally begin with our, uh, our guests, and that is just tell us a little bit about how you came to be a Christian. Thanks. Yeah, I grew up in Yorkshire and uh, I was in a Christian family, so I'm really grateful to my parents for a good, stable upbringing. Um, th there was probably never a time when I didn't think that Jesus died for my sins. Um, but I think the, the real turning point was early teens, sort of 12 or 13. I remember sitting in church one Sunday evening, can't remember what the preacher was saying, but I was just thinking, goodness, if this stuff is true, which I think it is, then it, this really should make a difference because it had never really hit me up until that point about the implications of the things that I thought I believed. So ever since then, it's been a, a gradual process of just working out, okay, so the things I do, the things I think, the things I say, 
the, the direction of my life, that is all really important and, and Jesus should make a difference to that. So it's been that very gradual process since then, which goes on till today. Mark, um, you went off to, to medical school and um, became a doctor. You got involved with the Christian Medi- Medical Fellowship whilst you were at university. Tell me a little bit about what the fellowship does, um, because it's some people might think of it as being a kind of a, a CU, a Christian union for doctors. And um, maybe it is a bit, but it's more than that, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. It's it's a wide ranging organisation. Someone said to me yesterday, it's a bit like the British Medical Association, but for Christians. So wherever your faith as a Christian doctor or nurse or midwife, because we, we include nurses and midwives for the last eight to 10 years or so, um, wherever your faith impacts with your professional life, then we want to be here for you there. So we support student groups, we do uh, conferences, we, we do um, journals, and we write and blog on ethical issues. We do some work in health and justice, helping our members uh, work amongst vulnerable populations and just working out what it means to be a Christian in healthcare. It's basically workplace ministry, just like there are similar organisations for Christian lawyers, teachers, dentists, and, and other people like that. And MPs too, I can tell you. Well, indeed there are, yeah. I mean, I think, obviously, from my perspective as a Member of Parliament, I find the fellowship that we have in this place with Christians from all different political backgrounds to be um, really nourishing for me as a Christian. And obviously, at times, we can find ourselves um, on the wrong end of, uh, of being targeted because of because of our faith, you can feel isolated. That must be the case for many people working in medical professions as well who are Christians. Yeah, I think it is. Um, you know, much of the day to day stuff, you know, when you're just seeing patients and, and making routine decisions about blood pressure treatment or whether or not to have your appendix out and that sort of thing, um, you don't see that necessarily. Um, upfront day to day, but every day there are questions that impact you as a Christian. You know, often it's about integrity, it's about truth telling, it's about not gossiping and backbiting at work. It's about thinking, how can I be constructive here? How can I help the the situation of conflict between colleagues? You know, what would Jesus do if he was an NHS employee in terms of making a difference long term? Uh, mm-hmm. But then there are there are all of those more specifically Christian questions like. Oh, you know, should I be talking about spiritual issues with this patient, and will I get into trouble, and 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 how how might I do that? Or you know, here's an ethical issue like the classics of you know abortion, assisted suicide, and things like um, transgender, which is very topical at the moment. What does that mean for us as Christians? Mm. Thinking about those, talking about them, and and how should it make a difference, and how should we communicate what we think uh, in those often heated public debates. And so obviously support and uh, fellowship for Christians working in medical professions is a key part of what the Christian Medical Fellowship does. But as you've hinted at, it also spends a significant amount of time on what we might call campaigning, on raising awareness and trying to persuade uh, people in positions of power to make this decision or that. How does that work and why is it important? I think it's it's incredibly important because um, healthcare is something that is important to everybody, and healthcare is is inherently dealing with vulnerable populations. And so, as Christians, we're called to speak out on behalf of those vulnerable populations. And 
to help our members think about how they can do that better. So sometimes that's supporting our members when they're speaking out. Sometimes it's training them and helping them to be more effective. Sometimes it's uniting them into different networks. And sometimes it's speaking out more publicly, um, you know, like responding to government submissions or uh, doing radio interviews or, or podcasts like this one yeah. and, um, and that sort of thing. And I think CMF has a, a reasonably unique position in that as Christian doctors, we've got a, a position that is, uh, you know, it's respected. It's something that we can bring across. Some of our, our partner organizations are much more vocal and vociferous and perhaps strident in some of the things they say. I think we're often able to bring a little more balance, uh, certainly our, some of our professional judgment to say, okay, yeah, that's true, but we're really concerned about this, or maybe to help some of our partner organizations see a more medical angle and, and perhaps tone down their language or sometimes strengthen their arguments, that sort of thing. So we do a lot of working behind the scenes with other organizations as well as more public facing stuff. A mucky business with Tim Farron. We're speaking with Mark Pickering, the chief executive of the Christian Medical Fellowship. Mark, it seems to me that we're at a time uh, in our political life as a country where ethics uh, are ever more important, or we would like to think they should be more important in the, the decision-making process. How does the Christian Medical Fellowship get involved with and seek to influence the kind of ethical direction of, of politics in this country? Well, I, I think because healthcare ethics is very important in some of these ethical discussions, you know, that many of the classic ethical issues, they're about what it means to be human, uh, what it means you know, for us as Christians to be made in God's image, what are the implications for that? You know, we sometimes talk about human personhood. You know, what is it that, that makes a human being a morally significant person? Does that stop when you become demented? You know, is that not present when you're an unborn baby or fetus? You know, and, and are there other situations when actually human life is less or more important? Mm. So we're really, I think we have a unique position to be able to help reflect on that. And, and to think about some of the practical sides of that as well. Which leads us, of course, to one of the most important debates at the moment over assisted dying, assisted suicide, a debate which has begun in the House of Lords and which will find its way into the House of Commons. The Christian Medical Fellowship is uh, very active in campaigning against that change to the law. Tell us why. Because, like I said a second ago, it's really important to think about what it means to be human and what is the value of human life mm. and how do the decisions that individuals make or uh, the, the rules that are around the health service and what you can do with your own health, how does that impact on vulnerable people? You know, when, when we hear the arguments for assisted suicide, it's very often about autonomy and choice and compassion. It's about, you know, it's my life. I should be able to do what I want with it. If I want to end it, nobody should be able to stop me. And in fact, I should be able to have a, a nice friendly doctor to help me. And that sounds compelling when you don't think about it too much. But as soon as you say, well, hang on, that means you're changing the law so that every conversation with every person who's approaching the end of their life is mm -hmm. changed. You know, mm -hmm. those people who are depressed, who are feeling guilty about the fact that they're frittering away their uh, you know, their, uh, their life savings in on care costs, you know, it does make a massive difference. And, you know, autonomy as a principle, we believe as Christians that it, it's limited. 
you know, the, I mean, the, the whole biblical idea of sin is about unbridled autonomy. It's when when I get my opinion and I can push that forward, regardless of the impact on other people. So I think that's one reason why mm. Christians perhaps are often not swayed so much by the, the autonomy argument, which is so prevalent in the assisted suicide debate, because we see um, we, we see the impact of, of what a difference that makes. Yes. Now, for many people who are not Christians, they will say, that's all very well and good for you, you Christians. Um, why should I be denied this right, uh, if that's what we would uh, call it, um, just because of what the God that you believe in, but I don't, tells us? How do we deal with um, people who are not Christians and present an argument for uh, opposing assisted suicide um, that is persuasive? I think it's actually very easy to do that because uh, when we talk about you know, autonomy, we, we take the argument that people use, we, we run that through to its logical conclusion. We don't have to mention sin. We don't have to mention God. It, that's actually not directly relevant. I think there are reasons why as Christians, certain arguments uh, hit home with us more than others. But I, we don't have to do that at all. And so when we're presenting the classic arguments about protection for vulnerable people, about the problems of, of unbridled autonomy, about if we change the law one way, then it's likely to change and extend in another way. All of the things that we can see from looking at other jurisdictions where terminal illness becomes chronic illness and disability and then mental illness and other kinds of things. Um, we, we see that and we can present all of that without talking about God. And, and if someone says, I don't believe in your God, said, fine, not a problem. It, it's not directly relevant to us. I, I was doing a, a radio interview just last week and talking in, in purely secular terms like this. And the interviewer at one point said, are you religious? And I said, I am. And he said, right, well, I don't have to listen to you then. Mm. And I said, well, have I made a single religious argument to you? Mm. And of course I hadn't, you know, it doesn't matter if they don't believe what I believe about you know, eternal destiny. Mm. What I'm talking about here about the, the, the arguments that we use, they are the ones that matter. And I think that's one reason why in this, we can be partnered up with people who, of all faiths and none. Yes. You know, many people who do speak out against assisted suicide are atheists and agnostics. Mm. And that's absolutely fine in terms of making those arguments. A little while ago, I spoke to a person who was not a Christian, but a palliative care specialist. And, and her great concern over assisted dying was that over time, if it was approved and legalised, that there would be a drying up of research and you know, attention given to, uh, to budgets and so on when it came to palliative care. I don't know if that's an accurate thing or not. And you know, neither of us know the future uh, in great detail. But Mark, do you have any sense of what, if assisted dying did make its way into the statute books, what the country would look like uh, in that respect in, say, a generation's time? What could we, what would be, what would, what would be re, we be rightly afraid of? Yeah, I think that those are great questions, aren't they? Because so often it, it, it the, the debate focuses on what will it be like a year after it when certain people you know, can access the things that they want to access. We need to look at places like Belgium and Holland, uh, where they've been 
legal for a long time, where, as you said, palliative care does tend to wither. The investment that, that might be put into it initially when the law is changed often doesn't keep pace because why would you do that? You don't mm. have to solve the difficult problems of end of life care because you just say, well, you know, euthanasia is the solution for mm. you. In Canada, it's happened even more quickly than that, just within three to five years. Um, some of the major provisions about terminal illness have been taken out. And now in 2023, you'll be able to access it purely for mental illness, which I think is quite frightening. Many of the people who are proposing law change just don't take that seriously. Mm. And it's interesting that a number of the groups have quite different aims. You know, some of them already want to, to move the law beyond terminal illness, but they're not talking much about that in the current debate because, of course, it doesn't help Baroness Meacher yeah. make the case for her current bill, which yeah. is very tightly circumscribed. One of the important things to us on this uh, programme is that we want people to um, be more empowered uh, to get involved in politics. I don't necessarily mean stand for parliament, but just to make their voices heard and to make a difference. In, in what other ways can Christians in the medical world, in medical professions, get involved in the formation of public policy? I think there are so many ways. So if you're a Christian in healthcare, for instance, then you always have regulatory bodies. Uh, you know, there's the Royal College of Nursing, Royal College of GPs, physicians, there's the British Medical Association. And we encourage all of our members to get involved at different levels. There's always committees, you know, there are people who are running our CCGs and our, and our hospital uh, management committees. Um, if they don't have Christians on there being salt and light, then, hey, surprise, surprise, things are likely to degenerate. You know, that's what we're there to be salt and light for, mm. to be shining and, uh, and salting in, in every, every area of, of healthcare. And um, you know, just like having Christian MPs in Parliament doesn't mean you're always preaching the gospel uh, in the House of Commons, but it means that actually you're being there with integrity you're showing up and you're you're helping to make difficult decisions in a better way and that's really what we would encourage our members and those who aren't our members to to get involved and do mark um i think we we'll have to draw stumps there but it's been wonderful to hear from you i'm really grateful to you for your time but also for what you and all the others in cmf do in uh, promoting ethics at the heart of our um, public life and serving obviously on the front line particularly in this most challenging of times mark it's been a blessing talking to you let's hope we speak again soon thanks tim Each week, we answer a question from you, the listener, about how Christianity and politics can work together. Maybe you are thinking through a particular issue or you're not sure why people disagree on a certain policy. If you've got a question, I'd absolutely love it if you wrote it in on an email to farron at premier.org.uk. Although this week, we have a question from a listener via WhatsApp. They ask, why are politicians not talking about Christian persecution that's happening in places like Nigeria and in the Middle East? Why is this not in the mainstream media? I guess the first thing to say is I think there is a concern expressed by politicians about persecution of Christians around the world. And of course, in many parts of the world, as have been mentioned, persecution is uh, absolutely acute where people's lives uh, are at risk and certainly their freedoms are massively, massively curtailed in ways we can barely imagine. 
So to be fair, um, just down the corridor from me is Fiona Bruce MP, who is the Prime Minister's Special Envoy uh, for Freedom of Religion and Belief, a committed Christian herself and a former guest on uh, this programme. Um, she leads on behalf of the government work in this area. So I think there is a concern, not just amongst Christians, but uh, amongst party uh, leaders of all kinds and the government in particular about tackling this issue. Um, having said that, I think there is some truth in, in what is said. I think that um, there are people who perhaps assume that um, there is a, um, a, well, there's a squeamishness, shall we say, but including for people like myself. I know we are to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, wherever they are, but in many countries where Christians are persecuted, they're not the only ones who are persecuted. Many people who believe other things completely, uh, who may live entirely irreligious lives and or follow another faith, will also be persecuted. And I guess sometimes uh, I would feel uneasy about being concerned about one group and not also fighting for another group who are equally persecuted. So there's something in that. But I think thirdly and finally, um, there's a wrong perception, isn't there, particularly amongst folks in the West, um, that the church is, an, is a powerful outfit and that Christians are oppressors and not oppressed. I don't think that's accurate, but there's something historical about it. And so if I was being generous, I'd say there's that mistaken view that Christians aren't persecuted, really, um, because the church is all powerful, isn't it? I mean, there's two billion plus professing Christians on the planet. So, of course, they can't be persecuted. That's if I was being generous. Of course, if I was being less generous, I'd say there are many people in politics and in the media for whom Christians being oppressed doesn't fit their narrative. If you have a question for Tim, email farron at premier.org.uk. Well, as we come to the end of our time together, let's join together in prayer. I love in Heavenly Father, um, we lift up to you the current situation in our country, in our parliament, um, over alleged wrongdoing um, and members of parliament um, not necessarily playing by rules of integrity. It's difficult to get this right, Lord, and so we come to you for help, not just those of us who are MPs, but for all of us who think and care about politics. Lord, we, we ask that you would help us to be people who are gracious to one another, uh, kind, gentle, um, thoughtful of others' needs, including, of course, those who have done wrong, because we're all sinners. At the same time, though, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be people who don't sit on the fence, um, that will be passionate about things that are wrong, um, whether it be uh, issues to do with uh, integrity in Parliament or whether it be over climate change uh, or matters to do with assisted dying. How can we, Lord, be gracious and yet also passionate um, in accordance with your will? Father, we also come to you as COP26 continues. Help Christians to think rightly about the climate, about the world, and may you give wisdom and courage uh, to those world leaders making these big decisions, um, that the rich would help the poor, um, that wisdom would prevail, and that whilst we recognise that the climate is not the ultimate thing, uh, it is not an object of faith, it is nevertheless part of the creation you have granted us and that we should be treating um, in a much more obedient way. So we pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so that other people can find it for themselves. Uh, next week, we're going to be speaking to Lord Leslie Griffiths. He's a Methodist minister and a Labour member of the House of Lords. 
And before I end, I want to say a massive thank you to Cara Bentley. This is her last week with us. Um, I definitely couldn't have done this without her. She produces the show. In reality, she presents at least half of it. And she has schooled me in the art of being a broadcaster, if indeed you can call me that. Cara's off to even greater things. And we look forward to seeing how far you go. But Cara, we owe you a lot. Thanks ever so much. Thank you.